Hello, and welcome to More Than Abstract. I'm Pranjal, and I'm joined by Zachariah. How are you doing? Doing well. Today was a really good day. Thank you for asking. Okay. Just a good day. Just a good day. Really beautiful weather. Had a nice lunch with a good friend. Oh, yeah. It's so hot now. Can't believe it. Winter's finally over. So, do you remember the Concord? Uh, I can't say I remember it, since I uh, oh. wouldn't have been alive. It was taken out of service in about 2003. I'm pretty sure you were alive then. Oh, sorry. I thought you were uh, re- referencing a historical event, and this is something sciencey. Oh, no. Uh, so, okay. So, the Concorde is a plane that just goes supersonic. In principle, you could have gotten a ticket on it and ridden on a plane that goes really fast. Oh, my, uh, my it gosh. It was like you, you can go from New York to London in, in I think, three or four hours. It's just crazy fast. Five-year-old me would have been excited to be on this thing. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't know about it. So, it, it, it did go... It, Went out of service before I ever had the chance to go on it. Oh. I, I think both of us. Uh, I, I think I. I think it would have been really cool just to sit in there. But the problem is, it costs several thousands of dollars for a single ticket, and I don't think five-year-old us would ever be able to find several. How many dollars. lemonade stands do you have to set up, man? Oh, <laughs> you know what? Just one really successful one. Dang, um, you're right. But that's what I want to talk to you about today. It's supersonic flight. How is it actually different from regular flight, and why the why didn't the Concorde stay in service a little bit longer until you know I had the money to go on it? Yeah, this is going to be interesting because it make everything so much more convenient because we still use trains. Why not just go yeah. supersonic? <laughs> supersonic trains. Well, you know, just make them go faster. And all of a sudden, yeah, make every faster. single one a maglev. Uh, I think that would be nice. Yeah. So uh, I'll start by talking about speeds here. Um, instead of using metric or imperial, I'm just going to use the speed of sound as my unit. So also known as a Mach. So Mach 1 is the speed of sound, 2 is twice the speed of sound, and so on. Okay. Just as a baseline, Mach 1 is about 760 miles per hour or 12, uh, 1,200 kilometers per hour. Ooh. So clearly a snail's pace. It's got nothing on there. Right, your your um, mind works several times faster than that. I know that. True, it does. Uh, but before we start, if you had to guess, how fast do you think commercial planes today fly at, roughly? Um, mm. Well, if I had to guess, um, to get to Florida when I was a kid, I remember it taking, I think, maybe a few hours from Michigan. I might be misremembering this. So taking some crazy guesstimation math, uh, if I think it's like a few hundred miles down to get to Florida, let's just guess like 300, like three hours, 100 miles an hour. Hmm. And the, what was the question? <laughs> how, how fast do you think a commercial plane flies at? 100 miles an hour. Let's guess. <laughs> Wait, so you're, you're okay. I guess in principle, you might be able to outrun a, a plane in a car. <laughs> Oh, shoot. Oh, that doesn't make any sense. You're right. It turns out uh, <laughs> the planes today go at about Mach 0.85, so much less than Mach 1. Oh, that's not even a Mach. Uh, yeah. yeah they, they get made fun of. They get mocked, <laughs> if you will. Um, so our story begins a lot earlier than you might have thought. Uh, during World War II, actually, when I initially heard this, I thought it was crazy That's uh, since people were just barely able to get jet tech up and running... Um, how do they even think about going supersonic or anything like that? But around this time is when people first ran into problems with the supersonic issue. 
oddly enough, the pilot. So, so this all started because a pilot crashed, and uh, the people who looked at what was going on were just like, "This is crazy. Wind's acting like uh, we we don't expect it to." The crazy thing is that this pilot was not flying at Mach one. They were flying at Mach point six seven. So much below that, below even commercial flights fly at. Okay. Does this have anything to do with how planes were designed in World War II, though? I mean, we're talking about planes that were used for, you know, fighting people, right? Like, single person, probably drag is a little bit different. Right. Yes, that that is actually... um, I I don't actually know the exact reasons, but I'm willing to wager that's probably uh, why people saw these kinds of things at so far below Mach 1. Okay. Well, uh, all right. So what are science uh, scientists and engineers to do when they approach something weird that uh, that doesn't make sense to them? Well, they make some math to make them understand a little bit better. But all the knowledge that they had at this point was purely subsonic. So they figured that it would be absolutely impossible to go above the speed of sound. You'd hit what they call it, this brick wall. That's not to say that once a plane reaches the speed, a brick wall comes into existence to stop them. Rather, the air in front of them become at, acts like a barrier instead of the thing that provides them lift. Question. Was this just postulated at this point in time as like myth, basically? Like, okay, you'd, you'd actually hit a brick wall or what were there? Was there any sort of evidence for this? So what they had to go by was what they knew about air resistance at the time. And they said that it goes quadratic. Essentially, the idea is that as you get closer and closer to Mach 1, the drag that you feel gets more and more significant until it's infinite, so the brick wall. Hmm. Of course, that's not true, but I'll get into why. First, let me start by um, talking about how conventional aircraft wings work. So you have this wing cutting its way through the sky and air in front of it will flow around the wing, either above or below the wing. You might notice that if you look at the top of a wing, it's quite a bit curvier. So the air that's on top has to travel a longer distance before it can reach the end of the wing compared to the bottom. Hmm. That design is exactly what causes lift. The air on the top has a lower pressure than at the bottom. So the high pressure at the bottom of the wing will want to push itself upwards um, to the low pressure region at the top of the wing. Essentially pushing the aircraft up and that's what we think is lift just to make sure i understand here so far you've told me that the air uh, travels further at the top of the wing how does that contribute to having lower pressure than the bottom of the wing there's more ground to cover on the top of the wing the air ends up i guess spreading out a little bit while it's moving across the wing compared to at the bottom where there's you know not very much ground to cover okay and what are formula for pressure i don't know if it's this simple for the air but i mean force over area right and maybe that thing you're talking about with less ground to cover has something to do with that yeah the way the wing is set up it's the air that comes from uh, from above it needs to occupy a little bit more space so the area would be increased so a lower pressure in a way okay math works (laughs) yes math works if that was a bit too much for you, just know that wings are specifically designed to keep you up in the air if you're going fast enough. So that's really all you need to do to uh, stay in the sky. Okay. In all aircraft, there is a tug of war going on between having enough lift to stay in the air and keeping drag low. 
the atmosphere around the plane will try to slow it down. So there needs to be some balance between that and staying in the air. With this, you might think that all you need to do is just make a curvier wing if you encounter more and more resistance. But no, I guess if you keep going with that, you end up getting a circle and that won't really fly. <laughs> Tactical pun right there. I mean, we do have a hot air balloon, so technically. Well, it, we could just attach one to the top of a plane. It don't need to worry about lift no more. Yeah, I have some big curves and some small little... <laughs> but how did we get around the brick wall problem that I stated earlier? Well, it turns out they were just wrong. They are just flat out wrong. Drag doesn't become infinite at the speed of sound, but it does reach a peak. Drag is at its maximum and about three to four times larger than if you were going subsonic speeds. So not a brick wall, a wall for sure, not brick. Maybe a wood wall, thatch wall, no, whatever. <laughs> Essentially, if you were going to fly a plane, don't have it going at Mach 1. It's got to be either lower or much higher, like at least Mach 2. Wow. Can you imagine going Mach 2? I'd pay for that. I would too. Well, maybe. I don't know, maybe later in life I would. <laughs> I'm not sure what the contents inside of the plane will feel like after going that speed, but I know I'd get to my destination quicker. Yeah, it's true. We won't have to sit around just watching a terrible movie too long. I'd like to ask um, why the passengers can experience such a nice flight, say, at a commercial flight, um, and not be launched forward like crazy, because I know it's, the plane's going pretty quick from what you've stated. So if we get time, if you could answer that, that'd be really cool. I can answer it now. Oh. Uh, so the, the the plane, it's going pretty quick, but all, the passengers are also going pretty quick. You know that feeling that you have when you're in turbulence and you, you almost feel like the plane drops by like a certain amount and you can feel it in your stomach? Definitely. The plane drops a significant amount, more than you would expect. But because you're strapped into the plane, you don't exactly feel it as as significantly as you would or you know not in the plane mm -hmm. okay so uh the main idea here is if you want to go supersonically just go much faster than mach 1 well it turns out you can't just take a 747 put the foot on the gas and all of a sudden you go supersonic you need a special type of wing especially uh, designed to reduce drag this thing is called a delta wing it makes the whole aircraft look like a triangle from above really most planes would be uh, would look like a tube with wings coming off of one part the Concorde, however, looks like wings with a tube that goes along with it. I wonder if that's just the most aerodynamic way to fly. I mean, you look at birds and it's kind of like what we've touched on. There's a slight, I mean, there's a slight semicircle you could argue to a wing, right? So I wonder if that's just the best way to fly. Well, it's not, um, it, it's the best way to fly at very high speeds. Uh, you see, these kinds of wings don't actually give you very much lift. So when it takes off, it needs to be moving much faster than, say, a 747, and it needs to have a much steeper angle of attack just to get the get enough lift to get off the ground. So like in normal planes, they slowly lift up their nose till they're about like 12-ish degrees. The Concorde needs to have a quick angle of attack up to 20 degrees. That's all because of the wings, uh, all because of these delta wings, and all because these delta wings don't have as much lift as a regular wing does. But what it does do is it does reduce drag, which is important at high speeds. So another reason your you know, Cessna can't go supersonic is from the heat uh, of all that drag. 
uh, with more drag comes more heat all that air just hitting your fuselage can make your wings become structurally unstable so you can't really fly anymore uh, so you, you kind of need a special alloy to go supersonic that's definitely very counterintuitive because usually you'd think of wind cooling you down but i guess when you're going that fast it's different from what i would initially think yeah i guess you could you could think of it like when spacecraft re-enter the atmosphere they they have this uh, ablative heat shield on the bottom of them because you know all the all the, all the air just throws out so much heat as they fall down oh okay that's a good way to think about it actually one tangent here supersonic speeds are usually from Mach 1 to 5, but there's another regime beyond that called hypersonic, Ooh. which is a point uh, which is beyond uh, Mach 5. Okay. The heat in uh, during micro, uh, hypersonic flight gets so high that the wings can it's kind of split atoms, uh, split, uh, split molecules in the air uh, <laughs> around it from all the heat that it gets. Really? That sounds awesome. Yeah. Not for the atoms, uh, but for me. <laughs> or for the molecules, rather. <laughs> Splits O2 into just a 2O. We're not doing nuclear fission, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that was a... I misspoke. My bad. This isn't exactly the case, but I'd like to think, or I'd like to imagine hypersonic jets essentially cutting through the air in front of them just by cutting the molecules. That's so cool. But either way, back on track. How do you know we're going past Mach 1 without having like an airspeed indicator? Oh, so you can't like take a speedometer we have on the ground and apply the same principle? Yeah. How would you tell, say an airplane was flying by and you had to guess whether it was going Mach 1 or not? How would you guess? How would you make that? Uh, oh, do I have to be on the ground? Can I be in the airplane? You could be in the airplane too. Like, <laughs> Okay, so I set, I'm going to do this analog and set a spot on the ground, pre-measure a thousand meters away, fly the airplane, and then keep a watch timer old-fashioned way that is more systematic than i thought yeah th that you could definitely do that there's also a few other things that happen to the aircraft or around the aircraft uh, once it reaches mach 1 one being the sonic boom oh okay apparently people think that this the boom only happens at the moment the aircraft reaches mach 1 and not after but no it's the boom happens so long as something is moving past mach 1 oh so it goes boom 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 pow uh, <laughs> it goes boom 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 <laughs> you'll also notice some kind of shockwave that white cloud that sticks out of the aircraft as it's cutting through the sky you've seen pictures of those right yeah i, I never re really knew why i just thought they were you know clouds you push past i didn't realize it was from the actual aircraft yeah i i didn't actually understand that as well until i looked up recently but that's actually called something is it's something called a condensation cloud Essentially what happens is the plane is going supersonic and that makes a shockwave uh, that goes outwards and there are portions of the air that are at high and low densities because of the shockwave. The portions of the air that are at low density means that they're at lower temperature. If that temperature is lower than the dew point, they make a cloud. Oh, so we're going from gas to... No, wait, that doesn't make sense. So it's con condensing. High density gas to low density gas, you know, PV equals NRT. Oh, okay, okay. I was going to say... Are we sublimating something? And I got really excited, but we're not. Oh, that'd be wild. It's a neat thing, but uh, that also means that you don't necessarily have to be going at supersonic speeds to get this cloud. It's just a pressure wave, and then part of the air is at lower density. Hmm. If you have a particularly long helicopter rotor, 
if it's moving fast enough, then it can make these condensation clouds as well. So it can have streaks of white clouds around its uh, rotors. That would be very aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> that would be so cool. It would, oh, I would love to see that. Sad part is it makes the rotors structurally unsound. So oh. something's going to break. Yeah, that's a lot of punishment to take, but at least yeah. it looks nice. Something that people might recognize more is a whip. Uh, if you just whip the thing, there'll be a puff of white uh, smoke or something. Yeah. And that can be condensation clouds. So you don't necessarily have to be at sonic boom speed. Nope. You could just have a whip, crack it, and all of a sudden you get the thing. Well, how fast could a whip possibly be? I, I wouldn't even put that at a point one of a the speed of mo- any one mock. Yeah, uh, so that's the thing. You only get these condensation clouds from the shock wave itself. It doesn't need to be moving at supersonic speeds. It just needs to make a shock wave that has a high density and low density portion. The low density portion is cold enough that it makes a cloud. Very interesting. Okay, with all that, we have the physics of what makes something go supersonic all down. But why is it that we don't have planes that can fly or that fly that fast? I'm assuming it's very, very costly. You're exactly right, and I'll get into exactly why that is. Okay. So it's definitely possible, but to explain all this, we have to talk about why the Concorde is no longer in service and all the things that led up to it. So uh, near the end of the Concorde's lifetime, it was a passenger plane until about 2003, and it was the only commercial jet that flew at supersonic speeds. British Airways was operating the plane, and really the competing models were either retired or crashed. Well, the way I, I made uh, I said that made kind of made it sound like these things crash a lot. They, they don't. Uh, there was only one instance of a, a supersonic uh, pl- commercial plane ever crashing, and that was in 2000 by Air France. Glad to know there was only one instance where we crashed how many people? Yeah, it was, it was quite a few people. Although, if you think about it, more people die from car accidents every year. So, really, it's, it's generally safer. So actually, once that crash happened, British Airways said that the, the demand for flying on the Concorde went down by a good amount. That sucks for the Concorde, but that probably wasn't the only reason that the plane was put out of service. Turns out, it takes a whole lot of fuel to get the Concorde up to Mach 2, which is where it cruises at, and then keep it there for a few hours. Okay. Do you know what kind of fuel, somewhat of a tangent, the Concorde took? Uh, jet fuel. I- <laughs> I mean, how does that compare to, you know, our our car fuel, you know, standard unleaded gasoline as opposed to jet fuel? I don't really know that we, how, how that really works. Yeah, I don't really know. Somehow fuel is treated and messed with to make it better for jets. <laughs> I, I don't have a good answer for that, so I'll just leave it there. Okay. I, I just, I wonder, because, you know, say you have octane, I wonder how many more carbons you can, you know, desaturate oh, as opposed to yeah, jet maybe, fuel maybe they have like 120 octane or something it's right right way too good for our cars like super branched carbon but with a bunch of unsaturated areas is that yeah, just yeah. super good fuel is does that correlate i'm not sure i i believe the so the gas is just a chain of hydrocarbons so i, I jet fuel probably just has more of these hydrocarbons like more hydrogen on each carbon chain Right, because the more you have, the more it can burn, and then yeah. it's a combustion reaction. Yeah, yeah. So the Concorde has to get through all the drag of Mach 1, and it's kind of hard. And the, and the engines need to really do some work there as well. Um, so that takes up a lot of the fuel, and then it needs to stay at Mach 2. 
I skipped talking about the engines because that's a that's a whole uh, another beast. But they also need a special kind of engine as well. So you can't exactly use a regular propeller to spin up and go and just spin it up fast enough to go supersonic. And I'm assuming it's not just one engine, but a bunch of engines. Yeah, two engines. Oh, well, not as many as I thought. <laughs> yeah, two, I think, Rolls-Royce engines. Another thing that led to the Concorde's demise was that it was really expensive, like we talked about before. So it, it was really expensive, much more than like flying business or first class for a regular subsonic flight. So because of that, a good number of the passengers were ones that either got randomly upgraded or used their miles to get on the Concorde. So uh, they were British Airways was still making a profit, but not as much as they would with subsonic flights. There was a certain point when the manufacturer of the Concorde wouldn't support the parts anymore. So the maintenance costs went straight up. Okay, wow. The plane was actually already 30 years old when it stopped flying, so it was a bit on the older side and... Well, British Airways didn't really want to go about upgrading it. So, bottom line, it really it wasn't really making as much money as super as subsonic flights and that was the end of supersonic commercial flights. Poor guy. Do we know when it was put in service and when it was you said it was retired in like 2000 something? 2003. 2003. I think it was 1970s something early 70s that's pretty old honestly at that point i i'm not sure i'd feel comfortable on a 30 year old plane yeah i think delta the average age of their fleet is like a, maybe a decade or less it's not very much so i wonder then if that correlates to their uh you know ratings because uh i think nobody flies ghost right and i wonder if they just have really old planes it could be i don't know we'd have to make another plane podcast i guess <laughs> So that's uh, all I have for you, Zachariah. What do you think? Give me some more, man. <laughs> if you like this episode, please consider subscribing and leave a review. Tell us what you think about it. And tell a friend about it. And we have some supplementary material on our Twitter, at More Abstract. Tell me what you think. And you can find more episodes wherever you get podcasts.